poker's legendary champions, next generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Philosophical Friday on Chasing Poker Greatness with your hosts, Duncan Palamortis and Peter Birmingham. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Philosophical Friday. These are your co-hosts, Peter Birmingham, and yours truly, uh, Duncan Palamortis. And uh, today, we're also joined by Ben Kushigian, who is a PhD student at the University of Washington studying computer science uh, and started playing poker at the start of the pandemic and is currently interested in using and improving existing technology, for example, solvers and hand databases, to make learning poker easier. He's also an invaluable and highly articulate member of the community with a lot of great insights, both within the world of computer science, but also on other areas as well, like music, as you can see from Ben's background. Gentlemen, how are you today? I'm doing great. Excellent. Excellent. Very good. Peter, how about yourself? How, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing very well as always, Duncan. Happy to be here. And in case our listeners may have noticed, it's been made official on by today's intro. The big boss man is out and I'm in. So it's Peter and Duncan now. We got introduced properly. So yeah, we're very happy about that one. Nice. <laughs> that's, that's, that's exactly right. And Moving on up. <laughs> in, in, indeed. So, 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 Ben, let me ask you a, a question so we can start things off. Why does, you know, uh, technology in general excite you? And what are some things that uh, you, you are interested in in the current setting of poker technology? And what are some things that you would like to see in the future? Uh, technology, it makes life easier in, in theory. <laughs> um, and I mean, I guess... I'm more interested in solving problems and like technology is where I solve problems. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know exactly why I think I, I think I like the process of coding and solving problems and figuring out, like, I really like coming across a chewy problem and trying to find new ways of looking at it. Um, and Ever since I started programming, so I started, uh, I was not originally a mather or a programmer. I got into this in my mid twenties and, um, and I remember very early on, I, whenever I had a thing I was working on, I try to write a program to solve it. Mm -hmm. And I end up spending more time automating things that I don't do that often that I do actually like doing, <laughs> but, uh, that, that entire process of seeing like, oh, there's a pain point. Like maybe I can automate this is a very, uh, fulfilling Feeling. And so coming to poker and seeing a lot of things that I feel like um, could be could be done. Yeah, I, for lack of a better word, better. Like, I, th I think there's a lot of things that could be improved upon a lot of workflows. Um, and, uh, and in part seeing all of the cool things that people have already done, like solvers are really cool. Mm -hmm. Like every time I open up something like Pio Solver or GTO Plus, I'm blown away by 
how much work has gone into these tools. Um, and it's the fact that they're so good that I'm like able to see that uh, things that could make them better, like, oh, this is so good. Wouldn't it be awesome if it could also do this? And uh, yeah, I guess it's just a, it's a medium for like creative juices to flow. And uh, I think I just enjoy being creative. Absolutely. And it's uh, it opens the question of what are some things that you would like to see uh, automated? What are some things you would like to see implemented in technology that currently we're, we're not having? Well, there's there's a lot of things and I kind of want to uh, open technology up even more than just solvers like um, here. Here's one thing that I would uh, like like on a HUD. Right? Mm -hmm. Currently, we have colors. Right. And this is these are like bins like you are green, which for me means like passive, like if you're limping a lot preflop and if you're, you know, I have certain exploits I do against green players and I have certain exploits I do against red players. Mm -hmm. um, and this is, I mean, I think this is very useful, but like sometimes I want to say like, oh, this player does this thing that's kind of green, but this thing that's kind of red. And uh, like, it would be great if I could just have like check marks, right? Like this player, mm -hmm. you know, bluffs too much in the river, but calls too much, you know, stuff like that. So this is not like a super crazy technological thing. It's just, it's like a user interface kind of thing, right? Yeah, so cool. there's a lot of like human facing things that I think we could improve. Uh, data visualization is another one. Uh, one thing that I found in solvers, I have a very, we have a lot of tooling for understanding what a strategy looks like in a vertical sense. Like, this is what I'm doing in this spot. Like I'm, I'm using a large sizing. I'm polarizing with this part of my range. I'm, you know, block betting with this part of my range, but what happens is things, you know, what happens to my different lines? I don't have a good way of visualizing horizontally, like over time as the hand plays out. And this is a much harder problem because you have to take into account different turns, different rivers, different actions. Um, but a huge thing that we're not seeing in a solver is rain, like a uh, different composition of your lines. It's easy to approximate a spot and it looks almost right. But if you were to approximate each consecutive spot, you're horribly imbalanced by the river because you were 5% off here, 5% off there. Right. And unless if you're not thinking about your range composition with all of these lines, um, so tooling to help that. And again, this is not, this is nothing technologically like innovative. This is just this is just human facing stuff. So that's half of it, right? Like, how can we take the information that we already have and present it better? Um, and then the other half is how can we, uh, you know, right now we're asking one question was what, what is equilibrium? Or if you know, locking, like what's the max exploit? Um, but is that really the thing that we want to ask, right? Do I want to have the most complicated solution that gets the extra 0.001 big blinds on the river? Or do I want to have a program that tells me, hey, this is a thing that, okay, I might be losing a little bit against a solver, right? Maybe I'm losing like 1% of the pot or 2% of the pot. Um, but this is a thing that you can sit down in an afternoon and understand. And maybe even something that generalize. here's a bunch of boards that like, here's a strategy that basically applies to all these boards that you can learn in an afternoon. And now every time you see this spot, rather than having to spend the three or four days going through and like collecting data, this is, this is just, this is it. Like, this is a simplified thing. And uh, yeah, like that, that is now starting to become a technological thing because we are no longer like this, this is like a theory thing, almost like a game theory thing. We're having this trade-off between complexity 
and, you know, simplicity and where is, you know, we have a dial, right? We have a dial and where, where along that curve are we going to be? This is very interesting that you mentioned that because you make at least uh, two interesting points here. So the first one is you're talking about user interface, right? I mean, and the thing about user interface, anybody uh, who, any engineer out there uh, who's listening to us, they will know that this is the number one thing that they're trying to always improve, right? Whether mm -hmm. you work over at Google and it's presentation of how to do your, your search engine or a video game or on Twitter, whatever, whatever it is that you're doing, uh, user interface is very, very important. And you're absolutely correct, uh, whether it's color coding or some other way to make it more accessible. Um, and, and the second thing, which is incredibly interesting, um, you are illustrating a very important dichotomy when it comes to technology. And that dichotomy is the one between correctness and uh, ease of use, right? So on the one hand, we have, we want to be accurate. We want the answers to be correct. But on the other hand, we want the answers to be human-like. We need to be able to follow them, right? And you are actually really pinpointing a very soft uh, spot or a very weak spot, if you will, that has been generated from GTO-related strategies, right? Because they are notoriously inhuman, right? They're notoriously computer-like. So they're really far away from what a human uh, can actually memorize or sit down and, and, and use. And um, is that, first of all, is that fair? Like, again... Yeah, no, that's that's a great summary. Oh, good, good, and 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 the reason why I'm 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 having that introduction is because I would like to parse this into you know a, a, a few different steps. Like for example, you mentioned HADs. I definitely want to go back to HADs, and we're going to talk about them. I and we had a lot of questions about HADs. Mm -hmm. We can talk a little bit about that. But before we go there, what would you say are some issues with? Uh, whether it's GTO related uh, AI or AI in general, like what are some issues? And uh, to give you an idea of what I'm thinking uh, about issues, like things like um, you and I, uh, outside of the podcast, we've talked about the issue, for example, of of overfitting, or you know, we've talked about um, um, an idea in, in the past, not not recently. Uh, what I would call in instability, like a sensitivity to initial conditions. Yeah. Uh, do you want to maybe tell us what some of these problems are, or you can tell us what are some other problems that happen with, with AI? Maybe you can give a little bit of a definition for the listener. Yeah, well, I like to think of it in terms of pain points, because mm -hmm. at the end of the day, I'm a newish poker player. Uh, I've studied a fair amount of theory. I still probably have under 200,000 hands under my belt, maybe 100 to 150. Mm -hmm. I'm still learning. I don't have a cohesive strategy, right? Like, I am a part-time poker player. I'm in grad school, I have a whole bunch of hobbies. This is a thing that I can, if I'm lucky, dedicate 10 hours a week to, right, on mm -hmm. average. Um, more on breaks, less during paper deadlines. And how can I get technology in such a way that I can, uh, that for, first that I can afford it, right? Mm -hmm. And like something like GTO Plus is very affordable. Pio is a lot more powerful. It's also a lot more expensive. Um, and I actually kind of want to get into you know, the cost of entry into poker in a second as kind of just like a fairness issue. Um, mm -hmm. uh, uh, but yeah, we can we can push that on the stack. Uh, but so yeah, so that's the first pain point um, is just like, can I use technology without having to invest a huge amount of time to be able to get something useful back? Uh, and in particular with solvers. Um, and the, the second is, 
just I mean, I guess it kind of ties into the first, but like I can eventually answer questions that I want, mm-hmm. but I have to do a lot of digging. Like I'm not the first to make this analogy, but like solvers are basically you we are scientists inside of a lab and we are running experiments. We're saying if we do this, if we give this range, if we give this bet size, this happens. If we node lock here, what happens? We can even make predictions. We can make hypotheses and we can take these things down, you know, make notes and stuff like that. And it would be great to have an easier turnaround and kind of, yeah, constrain constrain the search space. Part of Part of it comes down to like instability. Like what you're talking about is it's very easy to, there, there, there's, certain spots where there's just two totally different looking strategies that are just based on minutiae. Like it could, you could even have identical inputs, but slightly different algorithms and they will find very different right. looking equilibria. Uh, and this is, uh, I don't want to say it's a problem per se, because this is just how things look, but like, is there, yeah. How, how can we get like, um, in software engineering, right? Like it's very important that we have predictable results. Like, I've come up with a few ideas that I've pitched to uh, my 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 advisor and my co-advisor. And one of the things they've pushed back on in some of these is, oh, that's a really good idea. We've thought of this before. And the problem is that you're suggesting a system that's going to act differently. And so you can't really rely on the results to be able to build off of them in the future because they might change. And as somebody that's trying to uh, like, oh, I thought I understood this spot. And now I'm looking at the solver and it's totally different. Like, you're kind of gaslighting yourself, right? And that can, that adds friction in your internal mental model. Um, and on the other side of that, maybe you have a better understanding of what the landscape looks like. Uh, but unless you're really trying to say like, I want to understand this for the internal benefit of understanding this. Like if, I, if I'm just a poker nerd and I just love learning about poker and I'm not trying to implement it, that can be great. But if I want to have a way that I can quickly improve my game, uh, that, that, that's a problem. And that's extra friction, uh, in the system that I, I don't know if I can get rid of that. I mean, that's just kind of part of the complexity, but it is, these are the kind of problems that, uh, I think confront users of solvers and tech in general. Absolutely. And it goes back to the interface that you were talking about earlier, right? I mean, it, it could be an inherent property of the game, whether we're talking about instability or you said different algorithms d- yielding different results. But in the end of the day, when the question is, what should I do in that spot? If the user is getting contradicting answers and they don't necessarily have the technical know-how of how they got there, exactly the same way, for example, that an iPhone user has no idea what's happening in that little thing that they're holding in their hands. They're just Mm -hmm. clicking buttons and hopefully they get answers. Um, That could potentially be a problem. In, yeah. in, in in that sense, yeah. right? And, yeah. and, and you're making a very good point here that the form of instability, um, uh, actually instability is un- uh, unstable um, solutions is actually a technical term that comes from differential equations. But in any case, the, mm-hmm. the, the instability comes in into different shapes. You know, sometimes, you know, you have different in a uh, slightly different initial conditions and you get totally different results or sometimes you have the same initial conditions because you have a different algorithm namely a mm-hmm. process by which to you know uh, work these things through you also get different results and yeah. you know i mean nerds like us we love that stuff but the yeah. thing is when it comes to the user it can be a nightmare and it's a question of is that thing even even working right mm-hmm. yeah yeah, I've seen 
questions on uh, GTO Wizard, uh, who I want to mention, uh, mm -hmm. just because I think they're doing great work. Mm -hmm. I've seen questions in the GTO Wizard where uh, folks are saying, hey, I ran this exact same everything within in Pio, and I got a, you know, a different output. And I, is there a bug in Pio? Is there a bug in, in, in your software? And like, what I think um, it's helpful, maybe we can chat about this a little bit, but like to mm -hmm. help realize that solvers are a search algorithm and you can right. search, you can take different paths and approach the same point from different directions. But if you're coming from different directions, you might, it might look different, right? Even right. though you're very close to the same spot and without understanding, you know, the implementation details, like the user should not have to know the implement at some point you will need to, but like up to a certain point, like the user should not need to know um, how we're implementing this. And if they have to, uh, I feel like, and I don't know, again, this is, there are certain things that no, we're no. just not going to be able to fix, but like, this is, this is kind of like a, the type of confusion that users might, uh, might come across. Uh, yeah. Uh, absolutely. And the way that these problems are, are being solved inherently, they have some difficulties and complexities that the creator, the programmer uh, needs to actually understand, right? I mean, we need to understand exactly to what degree the solutions that we're suggesting are imperfect and they are imperfect, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, to yeah. lesser or greater uh, extents. Yes, that's another really good point is that we are already working. I think you put it great on Andrew's podcast. You said we're solving an abstraction of an abstraction of an abstract. I can't even say it, but <laughs> an abstraction <laughs> of an abstraction of an abstraction. Uh, yeah, we are solving a very imperfect form of this. And so we're already getting questions of construct validity. We're already getting questions of, you know, is, you know, is this the right? And then once you, you know, there's like, uh, I, there are questions. This is kind of similar to like cursive dimensionality where like, once you start getting like really big search spaces, um, it turns out that like things, everything's kind of close together. Like right. there, there's a lot more different looking things that are very close together. So in, in, you know, kind of, uh, I, I think you would take, uh, uh, you, you wouldn't agree with this uh exact definition of how i'm using it but like i kind of think of like if you have a bunch of different bet sizes in your strategy like if you have a very dense game tree i'm thinking that is like a lot of different uh dimensions right um that you can like move around it how much am i betting you know 22 percent versus 24 percent versus 26 percent you can think of this as like this really like you know n-dimensional space and your strategy is just a point in there and um and so as you get, you know, better solves, there's actually going to be a lot more noise in which, you know, where you are approaching this, you know, equilibrium point from, let alone that there might just be like 17 different e equilibria. Uh, absolutely. Uh, ben, if you don't mind, let me just take one step back for, for yeah. the listener, because again, yeah, yeah. Uh, dimensions is sometimes, you know, people are using it in physics and we're talking about the, the two dimensions, the three dimensions. Mm -hmm. What? There is more than three dimensions. We can think about four dimensions and then what's, all the things go a little bit crazy. So this ties really well to the idea known as overfitting, right? And mm -hmm. it's another issue that shows up with, with dimensionality, sometimes more is less is essentially what we're trying to say, right? I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. giving freedom, extra freedom to the algorithm can be problematic because then mm -hmm. the algorithm starts to match noise. Do you want to talk a little bit about um, about overfitting? And I also have a metaphor I can give after that. Like, what yeah. is overfitting and why is it an issue in 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 in, in the current technology? Would you say in your own? Yeah. Why, why don't we do this? I will give my 
uh, example or my explanation of overfitting, and then you will give them. I think you're a lot better at like distilling these things down, but I will I will try my best here. Um, but to the listener, if I make no sense, don't worry. Duncan's going to save the day in a second. Um, <laughs> I don't know about that. We'll try. <laughs> uh, uh, but um, so overfitting comes up a lot in machine learning, and in machine learning, what we're trying to do is we have a bunch of data, and there's some signal in the data that we'd like to capture, and then there's some noise, um, and what we're doing, we have diff basically different, uh, you can think of them as, um, I guess like, let's just think of them as equations that can like try to say like, we're trying to find uh, an equation that takes some inputs and then gives an output. And that, that output is supposed to kind of correspond to reality in some way. Now, you'd think that you'd want a really powerful equation that can get all of the nuances of your data. Right, you'd want to be able to, if there's a little blip over here or a little dot over there, you'd want to be able to capture that. But what happens is if your equations, if the you know the models that you're using are able to capture too much of this low level detail, you're going to start capturing the noise that we don't care about. And so it's kind of this wild thing in machine learning and in like all of these correlational modeling type things that we have, all sorts of like statistical modeling, that by constraining the strength of your models, if you say, hey, my I'm not letting my model have the full power. I'm I'm actually like tying one arm behind its back. Then that gives better, more useful information uh, because you're not capturing all of just the randomness that's inherent in every data set. Oh, this is this is a beautiful uh, technical explanation, I would say, and and I really like the idea of using the word blip. Right. And because essentially what, what you're talking about right now is a distinction between intelligence and wisdom. Right. So the machine that can actually captures the blip is incredibly intelligent, but it's mm -hmm. not wise. Right. So essentially what happens with overfitting is extreme intelligence with no wisdom. And, and the, the metaphor that I like to give is that imagine that you have uh, a, a person who's naive they, uh, and they want to learn how to dance. So in order to learn, let's say that to simplify the, the example, they want to learn a spin. So we present that person who's naive, but actually very good at imitating what they see. So incredibly mm -hmm. kinesthetically intelligent, but perhaps a little bit na naive. Yeah. And they view a bunch of dancers in succession, you know, they do the spin, then the second dancer does the spin, the third dancer does the spin. And then remember, our person who's trying to learn is watching at all of these dancers as they spin. And one of the dancers trips and mm -hmm. falls down, right? <laughs> right, right, right? Right. So, and then uh, the next dancer goes, okay, maybe another uh, another dancer messes the, the move up. So our naive person who's trying to emulate all of those dancers, they will also try to emulate the fall. They will, yeah, I, they will yeah, try yeah. to emulate the, you know, oh, I, I, I tripped. That must be part of the sequence right that's why i'm talking i'm calling them mm -hmm. a naive dancer because they don't understand that that's noise right so yeah. one of the of the dancers fell so uh, you know our friend is trying to capture that and that's exactly the blip that that, that that ben is talking about right so sometimes we have to restrict the algorithm and tell them no 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 no. if something moves too much just ignore it you have to so in like by restricting the algorithm, we actually are able to avoid, you know, falling for for the noise, uh, so to speak. And and unfortunately, when, when it comes to GTO, there is a lot of noise. The problem is so complex that we mm -hmm. have this inherent problem between, OK, we need to 
let the AI capture all of that minutia, uh, exactly like Ben uh, described earlier, but at the same time without capturing the noise. And one way we can fail to do that is if we allow, for example, the solver to have all sorts of different sizings, right? We're talking about like 13,000 different sizings, you know, like Mm -hmm. decimal points and things like that. That would be potentially a problem, Mm -hmm. which is, by the way, why we're restricting the sizings. Um, and, um, Peter, do, do you have any, uh, anything here about the, uh, the issues with AI, anything you, you, you want to ask Ben on, on, on that? Yeah, I think like, it's, it's funny, like always when it comes to solvers, I think, and this is especially coming from somewhat of a lay person who, you know, really doesn't have a great understanding of, of, of coding and, you know, the, the program and sides of things like. The first question I think most uh, sort of people will ask when they, they they come to a solver and they get the output and they see all the strategies, and you know, what what's lacking here? What the biggest lack, for, especially from a beginner perspective, is an explanation of why. Yes. And that's that is the critical that like that's the key piece. So mm-hmm. from a programming perspective. How difficult is yes. it to yes. get? Like, I mean, I'm now personally, even as even as somebody who doesn't understand this, I'm assuming this is a this is probably quite a mammoth piece of programming to try and yes. get the algorithm to translate itself into something we could understand. I mean, before you could even get into the programming, philosophically, how difficult is this to understand? Mm. This is a great question, and it's something that I've started to think about. Uh, the problem is that the way we think about the world, we want an explanation. And what an explanation is, is some sort of, um, mapping of abstractions that we can understand thoughts, concepts, like a flush draw value bet, merge bet, you know, range check, all of these different things, block bet. These have some internal semantic meaning to us, but to the solver, these don't exist. These are mathematical equations. These are just, this is the thing that's a highest DV. And trying to find a good set of abstractions that map not just to 100 big blind poker when I'm, you know, in a, you know, RFI pot, you know, where the, you know, button opens big blind defense, right? This needs to map to five big blind poker. This needs to map to antis with ICM consider all of these different things, right? There's, we need to find some set of abstractions or some schema of abstractions. When I say schema, I mean, uh, basically a way of getting a set of abstractions by saying, oh, in this spot, we have these sets of abstractions and this spot, we have these sets of abstractions. Um, they're basically an abstraction of abstractions. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we, we, we need to find some sort of way that's flexible enough to fit to all sorts of different positions. And then we need to start building up in terms of motivations. Why is this happening? Well, at the end of the day, it's because there's more value in doing this than something else, or it's preventing, you know, our opponent from doing something. Um, So how can we, how can we do this? Well, uh, there's kind of two basic ways, and then maybe a third hybrid approach. The first basic way is saying, okay, let's map our abstractions. Let's say we have our own, we're humans, we know what we understand. So let's take those and uh, try to apply those uh, to to solves in a way uh, that makes sense. And you can see this already a lot in um, 
uh, in, in current, uh, like if you look at like range constructions, you can like, you know, in a, you can say like, oh, what, what, what's the range construction of my turn barrel over bet? Oh, I'm doing all, you know, a lot of flush draws, uh, a lot of top pair, good kicker, a lot of sets, two pairs, etc. And uh, that's still not answering why, but we can uh, maybe start to then look at the response to, um, to those, to those, uh, those things. And uh, by digging through how different responses happen and then node locking and resolving, like, right, there's all these counterfactuals, like at the end of the day, the why is like, well, basically, like, why would I not do this? Okay, that explains why I do this, because everything else is bad in some way. Uh, and the other the other way um, would be some sort of automatic approach where we uh, we 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 find patterns again by looking maybe at counterfactuals or you know looking at different responses and then finding automatically generating a set of abstractions that say oh the reason I'm betting here with my flush draws is because I value fold equity or the reason I'm checking my flush draws is because they have a lot of nutted hands that they can check raise me with. Um, and and I and I don't want to get like check raised off my equity, um, and uh, so yeah, automatically finding these abstractions that we can understand, and then figuring out yeah, there's kind of like this chain of like what's happening, and then like how do I map that in a way that a human can understand? And uh, this is this kind of starts getting to some of the stuff that uh, Duncan and I have been chatting about. Um, unfortunately, I will be hinting a little bit at uh, some ideas that I don't really want to talk about in public yet. Uh, uh, just because I'm not, I don't have time to work on them just yet, but I'm very excited about them. And uh, yeah, at, at the end of the day, I want somebody to do them. I'd love it if it was me, but if, um, you know, if in like six months, I still don't have time to work on this, I might just like go and talk about it uh, on air. But um, yeah, I think that there are, there are some tools in machine learning and unsupervised learning. They've already been applied in like, you know, Hold'em Resource Calculator, HRC. They do this preflop with, uh, um, uh, they, they, they use a clustering algorithm uh, to find um, hands that are very similar. And so I have some ideas that uh, can do use this sort of automated procedure or, you know, maybe a hybrid approach where, you know, humans have some sort of input and, uh, we 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 can start discovering patterns that map nicely to a high level uh, uh, for 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 the math people. I'm almost thinking of like a homomorphism from like mm -hmm. our uh, from this high you know this structure preserving map where it's like I have this high level structure then I map it into this much more complicated thing. But all of the under the you know mo or most of it's like an approximate homomorphism. Most of the structure is preserved when I map my high level idea down to a low level. Um, Absolutely, and and to add to 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 your great intuition there, you know, as to as to why, um, essentially it can be distilled uh, to the following property: proper machine learning never tell tells the algorithm what they should do, right? I mean, the the, the example is if you try to teach a kid how to play chess versus to teach a machine how to play chess, the two approaches are completely different. You know, it, with a kid, you give them rules. Like you say, for example, things like, you know, try to control the center and the poker equivalent would be try to fold bad hands, you know, raise with good hands. But this is not how you teach a machine how to play poker. You mm -hmm. never tell the machine, go ahead and fold this hand. The, yeah. what, what you teach the machine is what uh, you teach it a value system, 
right? Yeah, and yeah, then yeah. you let the machine decide which hands should be folded and which hands should be played based on that value system. So it's always about a value system for the machine. And, and to some extent, you can do that to the five-year-old. You can give it a value system. You can say, yeah. hey, the goal is to make money here. However, you know, it's too complicated to go from the value system to an actual strategy. So sometimes you just have to help the five-year-old with like some hints, you know, maybe fold your seven deuce offset, you know, maybe raise yeah. with your aces, right? Nudge yeah. it in a certain direction. But if we ever nudge a solver in any direction, we've already failed. We're not doing mm -hmm. machine learning, right? I mean, we're doing memorizing at that point, which is- Yeah, yeah. And I mean, this kind of gets into like node lock and you can think of a node lock as a nudge. Right. Right. Um, and like, and maybe, maybe, maybe you want to, like, maybe I, like, there's actually a lot of use, I think, and I don't know, this is, I don't know how to implement this, but like, of saying like, hey, I want a strategy where I just do this thing, like, find me the best strategy where I, I know this simplification, like, you know, maybe optimally, like, we never do this. But I, I'm like, hey, in my game, I think this is actually a pretty good move. Now find me, like, uh, like, you know, I make it I'm making the solver always um shove tens on this board right find me something find me a strategy where this is actually like this is defensible and like nobody can really exploit this very well um but yeah that's that's starting to get into like very exploitative stuff which uh which can be good in certain situations but yeah like yes we want to in general let the solver discover the things it wants but we can constrain where the solver can look at like how many things it can look at um, Absolutely. And I, I would I would argue that this is actually falls uh, into, you know, the, the value system that we're talking about. Right. I mean, we, yeah. we're essentially changing the rules of the game. We say, listen, I want to solve a game um, where, you know, shoving there is part of the of the moves or right? shoving with tens there is, yeah. is part of the moves. And then from there, the value system remains intact. Here's the value system. Tell me, you know, what's the best, you know? Yeah, maybe, maybe this would be I mean, so we're kind of talking about it. I, I feel like a not a yeah i don't know what people know about solvers and the algorithm behind it but we're talking about value systems and that's basically what solvers do is we right. have it's a yeah there's this algorithm called counterfactual regret it belongs to a domain called machine learning and um i have you have you read the original cfr paper uh and, and no i haven't actually i i started to uh and it's dense. Uh, there's, there's a lot of, <laughs> there, 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 there's a lot of, um, yeah, equations that are tough to get through. Uh, I, I have an undergrad math, so I'm not like afraid of equations, but like they're, they're, um, yeah, usually I think one of the things that people don't understand when you're reading a math paper is that like, if you're experienced with this, you're actually speaking another language that, you know, as we said, as I said before, like I see an equation and I have some, you know, some semantic meaning to that. I see the summation and I'm just like, oh, like this is, we're just taking this average of things. And I, you know, but like sometimes you see an equation and you're like, I have no idea what each one of these terms are doing. You're multiplying these five terms and I have no idea what each one of these things are doing. And, uh, and yeah, there's, there's a couple of those in there and I, uh, I ran into it, but I can understand it at a high level. And, um, basically the idea, uh, counterfactual regret. So we build a game tree, right. And we start at the root, which is like, maybe it's the flop, maybe it's pre-flop, maybe it's even the river. And you have a game tree, which is just the nodes are current positions. And then, uh, 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 each branch of the tree is a different action that someone can take. And, um, 
you get to the you you eventually get to the leaves, right? You you go through these this entire tree and you get to the leaves and you say, oh, how much is player A winning here and how much is player B winning? And you propagate that back, uh, all of this information. But what you're also propagating back al along the tree is how much another hand would have made if, if it was there. So let's say I shoved tens on the flop uh, and everybody folded. But if I had only, if I check raised tens, then got to the river, like I would have made twice as much money. Well, I should now, instead of shoving tens, I should move it over. I have this regret back at this point where I diverted my tens to another place. I, I'm like, ah, damn it. Why did I shove tens? Everybody folded. And I, I think everyone's, you know, they get the nuts and they go all in and everyone folds. You're like, ah, shit, I should have, I should have done something else. Right. I should have slow played it or something, right? That is basically what the algorithm is doing. It's saying you, you come back to the node where you, where you messed up and you're saying, okay, let's do it right. And you just iteratively do this over and over and over again. And it's this really, um, and so what the counterfactual regret paper is saying is that um, basically this is uh, a, how do I, how do I say this right? It's basically a way uh, it, there's a, they have a proof that this eventually goes to zero, the, the, right. the, the regret eventually that's always going down or almost always going down. And what's more, there are other techniques that did this before there was regret minimization, but it took a lot longer. And this counterfactual regret is it's a kind of a loosening of the problem, but in a nice way that you get um, much faster convergence to zero regret. Um, and so that's basically what counterfactual regret is. It's just this iterative process where two agents um, are always trying to minimize the amount of regret that they have. Uh, and, you know, coming from your, you know, going back to value systems, that's kind of what we're doing is we're, we're setting up this system where we have these two different agents that are trying to explore the world and we give them this notion of regret. And this is, this is what they, this is what they value. They, they, they regret that they didn't make more money. And, um, and so to your point, like what, how can we mess with this? Well, maybe we can start tweaking uh, that value system, right? Um, so one idea that I had that I think is probably, I, I, I think there's maybe a 20% work chance that it may, that 20% might be high. There is a small chance that it will work. Uh, there's a big chance it'll just blow up, but I, I'm very excited about it. I think it's really cool. Um, so maybe we can encode into the value system some sort of benefit for having a simple strategy, right? Not only are we encoding how much money we win, but how simple was our strategy to get there? Um, one way to think about why this makes sense is that uh, by the time I get to the river, if I have a very complicated strategy, I will probably have messed up. And so I will be losing some money at that node. So the more complicated my strategy was getting there, uh, the, the more tax I should pay for human error. Um, now this does a couple of things, uh, first and foremost, it uh, makes our search space what I'm going to call non-convex. Now, convex in math just means that from any point, I can see any other point, right? If I'm standing in a spot and you're standing in a spot and we're in a convex space, we can always see each other. And the reason that's good for optimization problems is I can always see where the best point is. And so I can always move towards it. There's not like some divot cut out like a wall that I run into when I'm trying to optimize. So if I'm trying to find an optimal solution, I can always get there. Right now, a donut would be an example of something that is actually not convex great. in three. Yes, right. yeah, 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 yeah. If we're standing on opposite sides of the donut, or finding, you're trying to find each other, like you know, we 
Never going to do it. It's going to be gonna... hard. Exactly. Yeah. But a donut hole is convex. A, a, yeah. a donut hole is convex. Exactly. So we yeah. want to be in the donut hole. Not we want to be in the donut hole. And I'm a donut hole guy. Yeah. <laughs> um. and, and, and just to summarize some of these things for the listener, because I know it can it can get uh, quite, uh, quite difficult. Uh, so... Uh, the idea of the the the, the counterfactual measurement that Ben is describing here uh, is essentially what we, uh, mathematicians will call essentially in some sense an error function. But the way we want to think about it is is as a value system. And um, what essentially telling the algorithm is before anything else, we tell them, listen, if the discrepancies that Ben just described are big, you should be sad. So we're essentially instilling mm -hmm. a value system to the algorithm. So the algorithm does not want to see much change between what happened and what could have happened had they repeat this experiment again. And that's one thing. Now, math, on the other hand, comes to the rescue. You notice here Ben also mentioning that, that it's not enough to say, oh, I want to minimize the regret we have to actually show mathematically that that regret theoretically could go to zero. That is, we can choose a strategy, which if we actually did it again, that strategy wouldn't improve, right? You, you saw Ben mentioning that earlier, the idea that um, uh, not only uh, we can uh, uh, reduce our regret, but that regret essentially could go to zero practically right so there is a, a point of optimization right that's there is an optimal point and that's actually not yeah. easy to do mathematically to show that this uh, yeah. that that this this can be done and and to the third point that that ben mentioned so eloquently there the idea of we got to make sure that the things that we're doing are not complex so we're instilling uh, and this is essentially ben's idea and hopefully I really want to see you implementing one day. That would be incredible. We're instilling a new value system to the algorithm and we say, okay, I no longer care just about the right answer, but I will also care to get to the right answer simply. So mm -hmm. every time you take an extra action to get me to the right answer, I'm going to penalize you. So you will get penalized both for getting the, the, the wrong answer and for getting a complicated answer, mm -hmm. right? So it's essentially a, a double instilling of, uh, of a value system. Now, of course, that's easier said than done. And when you do that, um, uh, sometimes in a, a similar idea in mathematics, some of you um, mathematically inclined the idea of uh, bias and variance uh, trade-off, right? So sometimes there is a trade-off uh, between getting something that uh, is accurate and get something that has a little noise. We, we can't get both uh, both at once sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, but that would be great if we could find, actually, right, I'm getting all excited talking about it, if we can find a value system where we're penalizing the solver for giving us a complex answer, that would be, that would be incredible. And, I mean, uh, since there are already software that calculate the GTO solution, we already have a measurement of how far off we are from GTO. So we can, the, the algorithm can tell the user, listen, this is how much EV you're sacrificing here. 
to get that simple simplified solution where you can let's say bet 100% of your range there instead of having to do this pesky mm -hmm. randomizer or you yeah. can cut the bottom of your range or you can uh, add a little bit extra or whatever 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 it is so it is essentially an addition of an extra value system would would you say that's that's fair yeah yeah yeah, yeah. that's um that that is another nice thing that like we have um we have a good benchmark that we can work against and it's ultimately a trade-off, right? This is, this is, and this is, these are the hardest problems, right? right. If um, I can make more money and work less, that's a very easy job offer to take, right? right? Right. But like, if I have to work less, you know, I work, you know, 10 hours less, but I'm also making 25% less money. Like, is that worth it? This is a time versus money trade-off. And these are all of the interesting questions. Um, and we, uh, and this is kind of like what we're coming up against, right? We have these optimal solutions. Um, we're probably not gonna get them a lot faster. We're probably not going to get a lot more accuracy. We're making marginal improvements, and that's great. But now we need to start thinking about, okay, how can I, what's the trade-off between my effort and my value gain, right? And yeah, I, these, are, these are just inherently, I, I like to say that like math can only solve easy problems, right? All of the hardest problems out there, math, you know, like, Okay, we and this is and I say easy with like okay, gravity is easy, right? Not like not Einstein relativity gravity, but like <laughs> Newtonian gravity is easy. I mean, it took us thousands of years to figure out. Right, but like, if you look at the solution, okay, that's very nice and elegant. But then you come across a three body problem, right? And we're already getting to a point where it's like, you know, how do I talk about the interaction of three? You know, I can talk about two bodies, like a moon around an Earth. And okay, but three bodies is already getting so difficult that I need to stretch the limits of, you know, what mathematics were at the time. And now talking about like, you know, can I solve analytically like a, you know, an entire solar system? Actually, I don't know if this has been done. I'm assuming it's computational methods. I'm assuming that this is mainly being done with uh, numerics and that we don't have a nice analytical, like closed form solution to it. Um, but yeah, it, it, it gets complex very quickly. You're, yes. you're absolutely, absolutely, yeah. absolutely correct. Yeah. And uh, so let alone something like, like neuroscience or psychology, right? Like, like these things are way more complicated than, um, I don't know, differential topology, right? Like these are, um, even though one seems way cooler and harder, it's actually trying to understand like how a society works, right? How all of these individual people work is it's much fuzzier. And, um, and we're kind of getting to the point where we're no longer like when we start trying to understand um, a strategy in a way that is useful to people and that like, can work in complex dynamics, like how, how do I think about my strategy in an easy way that can adapt to this play style or that play style? Um, we're, we're quickly getting to the point where it's so complex that having a nice closed form analytic solution or like, I mean, even an equilibrium isn't really a, you know, the way we're approximating it isn't really like a closed form solution, but like these rigorous methods that like a Nash equilibrium, right? Like we have this nice clean definition, but we're quickly going to um, run into issues where it's just not the right thing for the job. Like, uh, and that's that's more and more. I was a pure mather when I was doing my undergrad. I loved like the algebra, topology, you know, complex analysis. Like these are these are beautiful. Um, uh, but more and more, I wish I'd done more statistics. I wish I'd more done more like dynamical systems, you know, yeah, differential equations. Um, these like more more real analysis type stuff. Like these are the things that I think are, you know, trying to map 
reality to a mathematical model like that is really hard and it's really cool and uh, right yeah it, it gets it gets dirty now the thing about you know some of these pure um mathematical subjects that you you're talking about like topology is that they're abstractified to the point that they're so clean mm-hmm. and because exactly. they're so clean they have precise exactly. answers right yeah. but when yeah, yeah. when we, when we get to the real world things are very dirty we don't know what we don't know sometimes mm-hmm. uh we, we haven't we're not exactly sure which value system we should prioritize over another and all of a sudden things get really complicated and fuzzy and yeah. but at the same time practical right because they're they're the real things you know uh, uh, Sean Carroll has a really nice metaphor uh he he calls it uh, the 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 spherical cow um it comes from a farmer who uh, goes to a physicist and he says uh, dear physicist i have these uh, 20 cows and i want to produce the optimal amount of milk i want to feed them the optimal amount of grass is like can you help me figure out the problem and then the physicist like okay Let's assume a spherical cow. Right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> assume all cows are spheres, yes. Right, exactly. <laughs> to, to, to make the problem easy. And that, that's to your point, yeah. right? I mean, it's it's so confusing uh, uh, otherwise, right? So we do a lot of simplifications in math to get these, these clean answers, but in, in actuality, it's getting too complicated. Yeah. Speaking of complicated, we have a lot of questions here about... Yeah, let's te- dig into them. ...technology and HADs and, and things like that. And... Uh, um, I want to make sure I give shout out to everybody who asked this question. So uh, Dennis Peterson wanted to know, I'm wondering why are uh, HUDs or heads up displays deemed as okay to use while playing, but preflop charts are looked at as unfair advantage and therefore cheating? This is a and- great example of... Uh- a complicated thing not being able to <laughs> answer it rigorously right this is a societal decision that we made like we as a poker community have just through random reasons in our walk through time right have decided that huds are okay and preflop charts are not now i can give certain examples of why they're different for answer instance huds are just more information it's basically helping me remember stuff mm-hmm. better about people whereas preflop charts are information about uh, my strategy, right? And those are different, like observations versus, you know, this, you know, ground level strategy. There's nothing that's telling me how to play. Like the fact that I know that you bluff the river too much doesn't actually tell me how to play. There's a lot of deviations that I can make earlier on in the game tree, like slow playing and stuff like that, that will help me exploit that. Um, so actually implementing a strategy versus that information in my mind is distinct. Um, but there, uh, there's not a hard separating line, right? And this is, you know, trying to come up with like a nice, clean, you know, canonical reasoning of why why these two things are treated differently. Yeah, this is just, it's the way things evolved. Um, the one other thing I will say though, is that there's, uh, uh, especially in like, you know, cash games, like I will not be super upset if somebody is like, I don't use um, uh, preflop charts when I'm playing cash or, or tournaments for that matter. But I wouldn't be super upset if somebody's, um, you, maybe once you get into these weird three bet, four bet lines, like where, like, you know, the ranges get fairly narrow, that's when they start mattering more. Um, but, uh, if you go into something like tournaments, like the entire, like, you know, tournament, once you are especially include considering ICM, it's all being done preflop, like a huge part of the game. So much more of the game is being done preflop and there's so many more considerations, right? You're not just remembering a hundred different situations. You're, you need to know thousands. And now, now that starts becoming RTA. 
Yeah, so, so somebody was going to say something. Absolutely, no, 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 no. I think I think this is this is great, and you're talking um, about the idea of how great the lines are. Uh, there is something um, reminiscent of you know a a clear line. It's not exactly a clear line, but it is reminiscent of a line. And I would say that uh, charts require no interpretation, while mm-hmm. using a HUD is a skill in itself. So there, uh, HUDs are interpretive, whereas charts are. This is exactly what you should do in that spot. You can actually memorize it. But with HUD, you actually have to interpret what the numbers that you see mean and how you should react to that. So there is a certain, albeit small, extra element of skill in in, in a HUD. As a matter of fact, if somebody doesn't know how to use the numbers, I would love them to have a HUD in front of them because they will misinterpret them, right? Whereas with a chart... You can actually protect yourself, especially if you're in a tournament situation, in a push or fold situation. Uh, if an amateur has their hands on a chart on a tournament, they can uh-huh. actually limit our edges tremendously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, though I will say that if you're if you're playing in like a really strong lineup, a chart gets a lot better. There's like if I'm again playing cash games, I'm mainly a cash game player. Right. Um, I don't mind if people are using charts in part because you need to interpret them, but people don't. If um, if I have a, I, let's say I have aces and I have a, uh, a you know, a right to my right. I'm on the button. Let's say that they're, they open on the cutoff. They open to 2.5. I'm on the button. And then I have two fish in the blinds. Um, well, obviously I'm always racing, right? But if I want these short stacks to come along, and try to get a piece, right? I like, rather than three betting aggressively or my sizes, right? You know, if I'm on the button, I should be three betting to like 7.5. But if they're both at like 15 blinds, maybe I should three bet a little bit smaller and try to get them to come along. Or, you know, like all of, there's so many different variables that come come sure. into play. And it's really easy. Like a chart is just like a snapshot of like this very pristine version of, um, of, uh, of the space. And so if you're not taking into account what the different, table dynamics are what your reads are in different players um your chart is just you are yeah you're getting close enough right you're not going to be punting um but like i should not be three betting as wide with a short stack an aggressive short stack to my left as i you know and so if you're just using 100 big blind charts and uh or god forbid if a bunch of people have doubled up at your table and you're playing like 250 blinds deep and you're using 100 big blind like three betting ranges like Good luck. You like you are losing a lot of value there. So, um, yeah, the interpretability definitely comes in with preflop charts as well. But I nowhere near as much as to the point of your, uh, 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 yeah, uh, uh, of interpreting HUDs. This is actually a, a very good point, which is again back to your point. It's not easy to to draw a clear line, right? right? I mean, things, yeah, things yeah, can yeah. be very, very, very complicated. Um, uh, speaking again of, 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 of no, go ahead, Peter. Sorry, I was just going to say, Duncan, like I'm a bit, I'm a bit, probably a little bit more polar on this particular, on this particular subject. I like, yes, there is some interpretation that go into charts, but at the end of the day, preflop is still a strategy. At the end of the day, it's your first point of strategy. And if you have mapped out that strategy, yes, there will be nuance, as you said, um, Ben, there, there's going to be certain nuances and there are going to be spots that require a bit of interpretation. And But those spots are probably, they're probably less often. And I think this is something that came when um, the recent cheating scandal, when they were talking about people using, you know, RTA and stuff like that and how 
the fact that they used it so much online, it almost became like um, they, to a certain extent, memorized the strategy from the software. They were using it. They weren't necessarily thinking about it, but that sort of muscle memory kicked in. So mm -hmm. if you've got a player who was formerly, say, a losing player, and all of a sudden now they have the first part of the game tree completely mapped out, yes, they mm -hmm. will make mistakes, but now their mistakes are far fewer than before. Like somebody, somebody, uh, and I'm pretty sure it was Patrick Howard, uh, tweeted a few months ago that if recreationals ever discovered how to play preflop properly, we may all go home. Yeah, yeah <laughs> because yeah. the the money will money online now, particularly online. I think live is a completely different animal, but online in especially, um, because that's where the biggest edge comes from is yeah. their lack of a preflop strategy, which inherently ex um exponentially makes their mistakes bigger as mm -hmm. they go forward in the dream. Yeah. No, absolutely. And I, I should not, I am definitely not pro uh, using charts. You know, I I don't like, and I really like, I, I say I don't mind. Like I personally, like, I, I totally understand why people mind and like you shouldn't. Like it's against the terms of service. As a community, we've agreed that this is bad. And you're right. It's telling you how to play the game. You are having, you know, computer assisting you to play the game. Um, but I just like, personally, it's not a thing that I get super up in arms against about though. One thing, one, actually one piece of edge that I've noticed, especially since I play on ignition, so I don't get that many hands against people, but I will have people tagged as a reg because most of the actions you see are pre-flop. Uh, and then I'll see them do something post-flop and I'll be like, oh, you're using charts. You have no idea how this game works, but you are, you, and like, so I've been treating them like they're a good player because i've only seen i haven't seen them get to showdown yet and i see one hand where they get to showdown I'm like oh you're really bad at this game like i could have been exploiting the hell out of you this entire time uh and now so there is actually some information hiding too so not only is like the theoretical edge going away but like the amount of exploit that i can do in a certain you know that ramp up time where i'm starting to learn who my opponent is uh yeah they're hiding they're hiding all of that uh so yeah that's a yeah it never occurred to me before but yeah that's a really good point they're hiding their true VPIP, right? Right. So speaking of, of cheating, uh, David Underwood wants to know, uh, will cost-effective anti-cheating technology be necessary to sustain the game in the long term? And what does that look like? And I'm assuming they're probably talking about mostly online, but certainly that could apply to live as well. Any thoughts yeah. on that? Um, I mean, this is not where I've spent a lot of time thinking. I know I've listened to Berkey talk about this a fair amount. Um, and a lot of the, inf I mean, he, this is like his, one of the drums he's beating. Um, I think, uh, like, yes, I think, uh, like there's whether or not it's necessary is pretty darn important. Uh, uh, I think it's possible that online poker can exist for quite a while without having like really strong institutional like anti-cheating measures. But like, I don't know what's a while, like maybe it's like three years, maybe it's five years. But with things like GTO Wizard that are out, like you can already just get like winning strategies um, just for 50 bucks a month, 100 bucks a month. Um, you no longer need like it's, it's already out there. Um, some of the like one thing that we will never be able to handle uh, or I is going to be much harder to handle is like if I have a database of solves that I bought that I can like access locally, I just have a server somewhere. I've basically implemented my own GTO wizard. Um, but that's very expensive. 
and it's going to be it's going to be hard to handle something like that. Um, something like um, I I've heard rumors of sites. Uh, well, I, you know, sometimes I'll go to access a GTO wizard node. It'll be like, oh, you have to wait twenty seconds uh, because we don't want you to use this in hand. Um, so that's happening. But I've also heard rumors of sites um, keeping track of like when each hand was looked up and say and having communication with different uh uh with actual poker sites not just the trading sites but the poker sites they'll have communications with each other to say like oh this hand was used here and they'll be like oh this player looked at this node at, and that's exactly what this board at this time and they did that again at the, you know and you'll be very able quickly able to see um what uh yeah if, if somebody's looking stuff up in real time and i think that's i've that's heard, like I've a, heard the same thing yeah yeah, that's that's an that's so easy to implement. That's just data, and this is one place where, like a chess engine, I can just run it in my browser. I can clone Stockfish, and you know, <laughs> get clone GitHub.com/stockfish, and then like run right, and I can just get the right move, and nobody can tell. But poker, it's so expensive to get a full game tree. Um, so unless I'm like running solves in real time, which uh, you need a huge supercomputer to do that. Um, or you have like an entire database, which you need a huge super to, uh, supercomputer to do that. Uh, it's it's not really feasible. You have to go through these centralized third parties. And um, so I think that there are like anti-cheating uh, measures that are going to be pretty easy to put in place that will get rid of most most of the easiest cheating. And uh, it won't be perfect, right? But um, I do think that these nudges, these behavioral nudges away from... Uh, if we don't make it super trivial to do something bad, it's like, like what's the, the the thing? Like when they changed in Britain, when they changed from like that one kind of gas up into the next kind of gas, right? Where you could no longer like suicide rates went way down because like the ease, like they used to be able to put your head in the oven and like that would, you know, asphyxiate you. Um, but when they put like the new, uh, they changed the type of gas that no longer killed you. And just because the means of like an easy action that was like spur of the moment, like went down, like suicide rates plummeted by like, you know, like 70% or something like that. And this is, um, yeah, if we make it harder to just do the, the, the easiest cheating, like it's not going to be as tempting. Um, yeah. So I, I, I think that, I think that we can, uh, hopefully curb a lot of that. The other thing I will say is that a lot of uh, where, where does our value come from? It's not against reg battling, right? It's against fish. Now, a lot of fish, I don't think are going to be there. There will be some, and this is just totally conjecture, but I think most fish aren't going to be, uh, or recreational players. I shouldn't say fish. We're all fish, right? Everybody, you know, everybody that exists is a fish. Uh, but, uh, uh, most rec players, I don't, I don't think are going to be looking at these solvers. Like this is a very much reggy thing to be doing, like getting a subscription to, uh, uh, to GTO wizard or something like that. And, um, and most of my value is coming from them. And if I'm paying a little bit extra to people using solvers, like they're getting a small amount of money from me, but if I play right, I'm getting even more money, uh, by exploiting, uh, wrecks than, uh, than they are getting from me. And they're also not going to be getting as much money as they could from rec players if they're only just using, uh, these solvers. So I do still think, um, like in some sense, it might even be better for like, I'm not actually saying this is quickly turning into more rake is better, which is not what I'm saying. But like, you could imagine a universe if you tweak a couple of dials where actually wrecks are being exploited less by the people that are using the solvers. And that's actually better for the ecosystem. And again, I'm not saying that's the case. But like, um, I think it's 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 more complicated. And you need to hit a certain critical mass before it's so unprofitable. Um, 
to be playing. So I, I think it's going to take more than just like, you know, uh, a small percentage of the user base um, using using these tools uh, before it like ruins the game. Right. And it's, it is a very it is indeed a very complicated issue. Right. I mean, it's not like we can fix one thing and then all of a sudden everything is perfect. Right? I mean, there's a lot of parameters that go in, into play for sure. Um, so. Okay, so here, here, here's the the last question for you, right? I mean, it's a, to a little bit more lighthearted. So Rene uh, Rene Coronado wants to know uh, who would win in a ring game: a neural net, a equilibrium calculator, or a top pro? Oh, that's a good question. Oh yeah, I I saw that in chat, and I was like, ooh, that's really hard. Actually, I have no idea. First, I want to make a shout out to Rene. He. Uh, recommended a book which i'm going to recommend called the alignment problem which very much ties into what we've been talking about um the alignment problem in ai is i want to align the value system that i'm giving to my ai with the problem that i actually want to solve mm. it's very easy to make an ai that uh uh does something that looks kind of like what i want but is actually totally different and if we're not very very careful about how we are uh programming these artificial intelligences we might get just <laughs> really bad results that aren't immediately like you know like racist algorithms and stuff right, like that right, right? That, um but yeah anyway so shout out to renee for that uh yeah so i actually don't know a ton about neural net um ai's this is not a thing that i've looked into yet um so as far as and when we say a full ring game i'm assuming we're meeting with other human players uh yeah so uh, i mean yeah we can he didn't say full ring game to be honest he just said ring game i mean okay we can assume for this okay. one that but it's like, like three way, let's say yeah that it's like it's they're not just battling each other there's others that they can both exploit so this is a question about um sure. i am interpreting this as sure. if i was to deploy both of these into the wild they're at the same table but they're you know at some game that is primarily humans um who's going to win the most and um, there, so there's a couple of different considerations. Uh, first, we need to say like, is my equity calculator, is, did it already calculate or is it able to calculate live? Um, and is my equity calculator just like, can it node lock intelligently? Is it able to make observations? I think, and I, I'm really not in the neural net deep learning uh, landscape, but I do know that there are online learning algorithms that might be able to make observations and you can like partially train a network so that you only need a very small number of observations before you can start learning stuff i don't know if this is possible yet but in theory right we've qualified this uh this question about five times now but in theory in this situation that i'm interpreting that renee is asking sure. about i think that you could see a neural net um uh yeah, outperform an, uh, an equilibrium calculator just because it's able to handle fuzzy things better. Um, yeah, that that would be my guess. But if they're going head to head, I have I have no idea. <laughs> it's going to yeah. be very close, probably. Yeah, yeah I, I would agree with that. Like in a in a in a head to head to head battle, uh, one of these two probably is going to win. But uh, if there's actually humans in there. I think that Topro is going to make the most money. It's not even close because, you know, he knows when to switch between GTO and... <laughs> oh, right. That was a top pro. That, right. There was a top pro there as well. Right. Yeah, oh, I forgot. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think, yeah, if you're playing with other humans, I think the top pro is going to make the most. Um, so. Unless you significantly improve, uh, yeah, uh, the algorithms. But if there's just three of them, right? If there's just the three of them, right. I think the top pro is going to have a real tough time. Oh, Ooh, but maybe not. Multi-way game theory is tough. I, I'd say the equilibrium calculator is probably... Uh, not going to do great. 
I, I would agree with that. I think the neural net, yeah. it, depending also on how much uh, preparation it had beforehand, because you can actually put the neural net untrained to start playing there, or you can pre-train it, which is a completely different, completely different yeah. story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, man, that's that's some fun, fantastic stuff. So, 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 let me ask you this, Ben. So, if people want to know more, you know, they want to they want to reach out to you, like have a conversation, you know, discuss about well, where where can they find you? Uh, well, I am uh, I'm on Twitter at I don't even know my Twitter handle uh, Ben Kushigian at Ben underscore Kushigian I think Ben, ben underscore Kushigian yes uh, yeah and then I'm in uh, Chasing Coker Greatness in the Slack and um, several other discords around yeah yeah in the village um, yeah and I'm in Seattle so just walk you, around Seattle and yell, yell my name I'll come beautiful yes absolutely and you can often see like i mentioned in the intro you can often see ben um talking about the these these concepts that we discussed today uh in 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 a lot of detail always great insight and he he's spending a lot of time thinking about those things if it's if it's not already clear by the conversation we've been we've been having today and um uh, peter i don't know if you you wanted to to add anything else to the conversation um before we no i i i don't think i can uh, i i i like the way we we you guys finished that sort of that last question and it more or less came around to the old stock poker answer well it kind of depends it, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's that's exactly right uh so, so so peter where people can find you Oh, people can find me on Twitter, Duncan, at, at Peter Birmingham. Um, there's a four instead of the M at the end, as we, as I think all our listeners know at this stage. And you'll also find me knocking around uh, knocking around the Slack group, uh, chasingpokergreatness.com forward slash greatness village. Um, you'll find me there. And uh, yeah, that's. Uh, I just want to thank Ben for his time today and a really, really interesting uh, uh, conversation and a very interesting topic. Thank you. Yeah, thank you both for having me on. Uh, it's, uh, it, it's an honor. And uh, yeah, enjoy, enjoy your content. So this is great. Oh, thank you. Don't know. We had a really good time. And Ben, again, if you ever, you know, have uh, more thoughts, uh, hopefully, uh, when you go back, you mentioned earlier that this is something that you're working on. And eventually, you want to, uh, you want to reveal more information about it. When you're ready for all of this, we're here for you. You know, we can talk a little bit more. And uh, uh, let's put a uh a, a temporary pause and then we we will reconvene can't wait excellent well and thank you everybody for for listening and, and tuning in and we will see you all next friday see you all next week thanks for listening to chasing poker greatness you can subscribe on apple podcasts or on your favorite podcast app go to chasingpokergreatness.com to get the newsletter Join the Greatness Village community, book a coaching session, or dive into the latest data-driven poker courses. Follow the show on Twitter at CPG Podcast.